This evening, we're concluding our sermon series on eschatology. <clears throat> and so, if you will, turn to Revelation chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 this evening. That is Revelation, it's 1041 if you're utilizing a pew Bible. The word of God says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Again, Father, we thank you for the gracious opportunity we have to open your word. You chose to reveal yourself, your attributes, the things that you require of us through your word. And so it is our heart's desire to know and to hear that which you have to say to us. So we ask that you would illumine our minds and our hearts even now. Grant that we would understand that which is before us. Grant that we be, would be motivated to live before you in a manner that most pleases you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So question, have you ever sat back and reflected on your life, and then uh, concluded, you know, if I could go back, there's a few knucklehead things that I did, a few other crazy things that I did, some things in my life that I did that I would change. I would change thus and thus. Or I would do such and such in a different way. If you were here last week or listened to the sermon that was preached uh, last evening, you might remember I alluded to Adam and Eve having just such a conversation towards the end of their life. Adam, the Bible tells us, lived to be 930 years old. He and Eve were the only two human beings that actually experienced living in a world that God described as being not just good, but very good. Then on the strength of their own actions, they witnessed and experienced quite the opposite of that which was very good. Strife within their own relationship, pain and childbearing, the sense of dignity, fulfillment, and calling that came from tending and, and keeping the garden, or, or in other words, work, was now accompanied with an air of arduousness or difficulty. 
And above all else, there was a loss of their intimate fellowship with God. They died spiritually and were dying daily, or as I mentioned last week, all the maladies that were associated with dying was now a normal part of their existence. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how Eve, how old Eve lived to be, but we do know that Adam experienced centuries after centuries of the self-inflicted maladies that he brought into the world. For We know this because the scripture itself states it was by one man, Adam, that sin came into the world. The Bible also tells us that eyes have not seen, no ears heard, and nor does it enter into the heart of man the things that God has for us. I wonder if that same thing happened or applied to Adam uh, that with respect to the sin that was brought into the world. Could he have known that just about every single person on earth, save except eight, knowing his family would turn against God? Could he have known that he who was created in the image of God would produce offspring who would try to create God in his image and try to kill him when he wouldn't comply? I imagine whenever Adam thought about these things, he was crushed and, and tempted and moved towards despair. He most definitely needed a word of comfort and promise, and he had one. For over the course of his lifetime, whenever he exegeted the words found in Genesis 15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, he came away with a blessed assurance grounded in a sure promise articulated in three words. God will win. In types and shadows, symbolism and imagery, he had a sure word, a sure promise from the great I am that that which was turned upside down would be restored. It would be turned right side up. Today, those same words, what we now know as the proto-evangelium, that is the first gospel, still resonate in the ears and hearts of those who belong to God. But here on this side of the cross, birthed through the suffering of those rescued by the seed of the woman, we've been given a fuller glimpse of the restoration of all things. It has been revealed by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John. And this is what we have. This is what the book of Revelation is all about. The folks in John's day were suffering mightily under the heavy hand of Rome. The same fleshly nature that caused Cain to rise up and kill his brother was now causing the seeds of the serpent to persecute those who were purchased by the blood of the seed of the woman. In the midst of the persecution they were experiencing, they needed, like Adam did, a word of hope. They needed to hear these folks who that was the uh, audience of Revelation. They needed to hear that God is in sovereign control of all the events of human history. And though evil often seems to be winning, though it seems to always be all-encompassing, God was indeed sovereign. Even though the wicked seemed to be at the front of the line at all times in control, bear up. Keep your head up. It won't always be this way. No, instead, here's what we, those who belong to Christ, can, should, must look forward to. And with that, he unfolded what we know as the book of Revelation. And as we come to this point in the book tonight, 
the beast, the false prophet, and Satan have been done away with, thrown into the lake of fire, that which is referred to as the second death. And now, brothers and sisters, John is saying or writing, here is what follows. Here's what comes now. Here's what's in store for those who love the Lord and are called according to his redemptive purpose. As we look at this, I want to articulate it in three overarching points. A gloriously renewed home, a most wondrous relationship, and a personal comprehensive healing, an all-encompassing. So first, a gloriously renewed home. Now, there are two shows that I really used to like watching on, on the Home and, and Garden channel. You guys know it as HDTV now. The shows were Love It or List It or Flip or Flop. Now, on Flip or Flop, the couple who fortunately, unfortunately became an ex-couple would purchase some of unbelievably torn up, messed up uh, homes. They were eyesore of homes and they would remodel it and it would just become something that was unbelievably beautiful. Now yesterday I, was, I watched an episode of Love It or List It where one family had a, a huge, the property was huge. Big yard, big house, but man that thing was a mess. I wouldn't pray, you know, I guess the amount that I would pay for that is zero dollars. In other words, none. It was a mess. Then Hillary and her people, that's the woman that always seems to win. The guy always seems to lose, you know. He, they never seem to want to sell. They always keep the house they have. But anyhow, Hillary and her people uh, went to work on that property. And, and when they were finished, it was the most, this old, big old house that looked like do you know the thing that the, the Frankenstein, the, what was they do? The Adams family used to live in. That big old thing looking like that turned out to be one of the most beautiful things you would ever want to see. You know? If I could only just like sleep in their bedroom or bathroom for one day, I'd be good. Okay? But that's a picture, brothers and sisters, of what we see here in, in, in verse 1 where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now think about this for a second. In the beginning, God said, he told Adam and Eve not to eat of one tree, just one, right? Adam was allowed to eat every other tree in the garden. You know what that tells me? You can correct me if I'm wrong later, but that tells me there was no poison ivy. There was no other tree or leaves like that that you could put in your mouth and eat and you would die. Everything was good, okay? And not just good, very good. So it would be like me eating fried chicken with ketchup, very good, you see? And so every single thing was good, but this place, and, and when Adam sinned, it just messed everything up. All sorts of different things got messed up, okay? So today there's all kinds of stuff that you could eat out in the forest that will kill you if you eat it. Not to mention all the other stuff that's out here environmentally that could cause harm to the environment around us and we to ourselves. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul reiterates the fact that the whole creation was subjected to futility and is now waiting, longing for renewal. And he says the same thing about us who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We long for the redemption of our bodies and the removal of sin from us. 
We long to live in a place where uh, there's no break-ins in our homes like when we first came here from Florida. Not here, but in Florida. No buildings decaying around us. And, and uh, you know, you got termites all in your, your walls and all kind of stuff. None of that kind of stuff. You know, my son came to visit and he ran through the screen door in our patio. And now there's a gap in the screen door. None of that kind of mess going on, okay? No stars running out of fuel, thus catapulting out of orbit as a shooting star. No potholes like when you go in Jackson, none in my street. When you go in Jackson and all over the place, no potholes and, and traffic jams. By the way, you people that complain about traffic jams in Mississippi, you need to stop. But no traffic jams and no top shelves that are too tall to reach. Okay. Here John gives us a glimpse of that place, a place that's also revealed to be the dwelling place of God, a new earth where none of that stuff is. It's the dwelling place of God who will be with them. That is us where we are. We'll be able to experience that which Adam did before sinning. Before sinning, Adam was able to commune with God completely. And it's a renewed, replaced heaven and earth. It's renewed, not replaced, rather. Or as it tells us in verse 5, behold, I am making all things new. Some people argue that the whole earth is going to be completely destroyed and done away with, and it's going to be a brand new physical orifice. But that is not consistent with what I believe Scripture teaches. One of the things that, that's consistent here is the fact that we, the bodies that we have now, we will have, but it will be perfected. We'll be able to see, I'll be able to see you and, and know who you are because you're going to have the body you have, but it will be a glorified body. We will be renewed. God is going to renew everything. Here in verse 5, it said, behold, I am making all things new. It doesn't say I'm making a new thing. This is consistent again with what is going to happen to us. We're going to be regenerated, made new. Now, I mentioned this passage also promises the removal of sin. That assertion is, is ground in the phrase, and the sea was no more. So, so how is that, you ask me, the sea is no more? How is that the removal of sin? Let me read what my friend, my good friend Rick Phillips, who was here during our missions festival and has written a commentary on this particular book, has to say concerning this. He writes, Revelation 21.1 adds a provocative statement. It's provocative because other folks would say, no, no, it's literal. It does mean that there will be no sea and a new heaven and earth, okay? But he writes here, uh, it's provocative statement that sums up the removal of all evil. And the sea was no more. In the symbolism of Revelation, the sea has a theological Rather than a topographical meaning, the sea is the realm of evil and rebellion against God. Psalm 74 describes salvation as God's breaking the head of the sea monsters and crushing Leviathan, the great mythical sea beast that represents idolatrous opposition to God. James Hamilton writes that for the Israelites, the sea was the great dark unknown from which evil comes. This provides the answer to the question, what is the shortest book in all history? The answer is naval heroes of ancient Israel. And why is that? Because there are no naval heroes in Israel. 
The reason is that God's covenant people avoided the sea as a source of chaos and destruction. In Revelation 12, 17, Satan stood on the uh, sand of the sea and then raised up his beast out of the sea. In Revelation 13, 1, that is. In chapter 17 through 20, John was shown the removal of the dragon, his beast, and the harlot together with their entire wicked program. Finally, even the sea from which they came will be no more. So we'll experience a glorious new home in glorified bodies that will know no sin. But it gets even better than that. For our text tells us that we will be in a glorious relationship with the one who created all things. It's our second point. And who will renew all things? It doesn't matter how great in heaven, earth and heaven will be. The greatest and most glorious thing. When we answer this question, who is going to do the renewal? The most glorious thing that will be in heaven and this new heaven and earth are not the things that we're going to inherit. But it is going to be Christ himself. And he is the one that will be renewing stuff. But let me just talk about the parties. I already gave one away. Who is going to be in this? At first mention, we have those who were justified. That is the parties that will be in this relationship, this intimate relationship that I'm talking about. That will be a benefit that we'll have. Who are the parties? So first, we have those who were justified sanctified and glorified. Look at verse 2. It says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now in verse 9, we hear these clarifying words. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And what follows after that, after he says, come, let me show you the, the, the bride, the very next thing that comes is, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. The holy city of Jerusalem here is the bride of Christ. You know, the folks in the first century and before the first century, we today only have the book of Revelation when we talk about apocalyptic literature. Like I taught in my Sunday school, during the first century and the century BC, the first century BC, this would have been common to the folks. They had all sorts of apocalyptic literature before them to look at, and they would understand what the contents of apocalyptic literature looked like and would contain. They would have understood when they were talking about the sea, the things that you heard me say. They would have understood all of these different things before them, okay? So look, and look what our text goes on to say about the bride. She was prepared, adorned for her husband, by whom you ask. Listen to Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, listen to this, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to who? Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy and without blemish. Our Lord purchased us with his own blood, gave us his spirit to cleanse and mold us, and one day he will present us to himself, those that the Father gave him before the world began, and we will live with him in a relationship as glorious as the one that eternally existed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word dwell in this text brings to my mind what Peter suggested when he saw Jesus, Moses, and Eliza on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's in Matthew 17. Peter said, let me build three tents, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But then God the Father interrupted, broke in, and said, hey, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Brothers and sisters, let me say this. When we get to heaven, okay, we will hang out with Moses and Elijah, but we will dwell with Christ. We will see each other, but it will be all about hanging and living with Christ in perfect union with him. That will be the greatest source of our joy, the greatest source of joy that we'll ever know. And I'm sad to say that many, there are many people who are in relationships, be it with family members, bosses, co-workers, where they don't trust the person as far as they can throw them. Just this past week, I had an experience at a, a car dealership that did everything to reinforce my opinion that you have to be a lying, deceitful person with no ethics who would basically give up whatever your soul for a commission, just as long as it's a big commission. If you want to hear about it, come tell me. Now, I can't speak for every salesperson in the world, but I can tell you every single one that I've ever dealt with in my life, including when I worked in a dealership for three years, are like that. So you can't trust them. Sadly, this is even the case in some marriages. Spouses who can't trust each other. You hate to see something like that from people who are supposed to be representing Christ and the church, but it's a reality. Well, this not, that's not the reality here in our text. For this is he of whom the scripture declares, since he had no greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself. This is he of whom, who cut when he cut the covenant with Abraham, walked through the animals by himself, making in a unilateral covenant because only he could be totally trusted and relied upon to bring all things to pass. Everything that you see in this passage is true and will come to pass. You can be 100% assured of that. Remember the context of what this was being written to and who it was being written to. They needed to be assured. They needed to be assured that Christ would do the things that he had promised. And that's what you have here. And we likewise, no matter what we, where we are, what's going on with us, we have a sure assurance that one day we will see and live in a new heaven and a new earth. One day we are already in a relationship now. We are already there but not yet in the fullness of what it's going to be. And here is a picture of the fullness of what it is going to be. And so it should not surprise us to hear 
him saying in verse 5, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So trustworthy and true are they that he created all things for himself. The Alpha and Omega, the first and the last that sang, the one who knows the end from the beginning, and he who once declared, it is finished, can now with the authority of the one who finished and was given all authority, as he himself indicated when he gave us the Great Commission, he can say in our passage, it is done. And brothers and sisters, if God said it is done, you better believe it is. There is no contingency here attached to it. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. The bride will dwell with Christ. And among other things, our third point, there will be a personal, comprehensive healing of all things bad, personally so. I talked about this last week uh, to some extent, so I won't belabor the point uh, too much. But look at verse 4. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, no crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, and maybe you're not in Christ, so I have to ask the question, is this what you want? Do you long for a time when you won't have to hear about 19 children and two adults being needlessly gunned down? Would a memory of pain only serve to foster the bliss feeling of knowing the absence of pain? Is the longing for the one who is capable of accomplishing all these things on your behalf greater than your longing to have these things removed? Here the Lord says he will give to the one who is thirsty. In John 6.53, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Again, another example of symbolism and imagery. He's not saying to eat his flesh and his blood. You have no life in you. That is to say then, unless you place your trust, unless you recognize that there is no hope outside of the finished work that was accomplished by and through the cross, and that only, your only source of hope is Christ, it is this person that will conquer because it is this person the saint, this person who has the conqueror's spirit within him or her, completing the work that was started in them until that day. Again, a quenched thirst and the status of the one who is conquered is nothing compared to knowing and dwelling with the one who is responsible for bringing all these things to pass. But oh, it's a great benefit. One that's bestowed without payment, as our text says. So all oh, that we would see the goodness of God in this text. All oh, that it would spur us on to love him more and more as we recognize what he's accomplished on our behalf. All oh, that our works would come from hearts of gratitude as we recognize the abundance of all things that awaits us. None greater than the opportunity to dwell with our Lord. Oh, that in light of what we have before us, we would be able to say like the psalmist, good times come good times or bad. The Lord 
is my shepherd. I shall not want. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture of heaven, this picture of the bliss that we'll have with you. We know that eyes have not heard, nor ears, eyes have not seen, rather, nor ears heard, nor has entered into our heart the things that you have prepared for us. But here you've given us a vision of a taste of that which is to come. And so we thank you for this. And I, Father, I pray that anyone who's hearing the sound of my voice, if they're going through anything that's tough at this particular point, something that's causing them to be downtrodden, I pray that you, by your spirit, would experientially give them a sight of that which we have just talked about. Cause them to understand genuinely the things that you have prepared for them. Thus encourage them by your spirit's illumination of the truth that we have before us. We thank you that you were the one that grabbed us while we were yet sinners. That you were the one that saved us even before the foundation of this world. And you are the one that will take us home and glorify us and bring us into your presence all to the praise of your glory. So as we leave here this day, we ask that we would leave here emboldened by that which we've heard, that we would live in light of that which you have revealed to us so that no matter what we deal with, we would understand there's a better time, a better place, and God himself will be there with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.